Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of March 2023. Welcome to episode 94 of this podcast series. The concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the books I read during March. These comics are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those lists. But those are not spoilers for this podcast, because those posts are just lists. But here, we have a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. And one I missed from the January episode. Billy D. wrote in on that one, saying he was glad to hear about my sci-fi readings during that month. Big thanks for mentioning and listening in on my shows. It's greatly appreciated. I'm currently living vicariously through you. As with work, family, and podcast prep, I don't really have any spare time to read comics these days. Looking forward to retirement so I can focus on comics full-time. He then added many laughing emojis, but I think he was serious, because... Mm, retirement. Sir Luke wrote in feedback about the last two episodes. Professor wanted to drop a quick email about the last few comics reading journals covering January and February. January, as Sci-Fi Comics Month, allows for a variety of stories within that genre, as many superheroes can also pull off the sci-fi tropes. To this end, I read the first volume of the classic Milestone series, Hardware, via Amazon Prime Reading. Definitely a superhero tale, but the story of the super-genius prodigy using his intellect to build weapons to fight Dakota's biggest crime boss, who is also his employer, definitely hits hard on the science fiction. I also continued my trend from last year and covered a sci-fi comic on Earth Destruction Directive, this time Trials of Ultraman. And again, I think we can agree that Ultraman certainly counts as science fiction. Yes, it does, Luke. On your sci-fi reading, the standout to me was your continued reading of Cantwell's Iron Man. I must say, as soon as I read the issue with Doctor Doom and the pizza party, I literally said, out loud, Oh man, the professor is going to love this. <laughs> this segment of the story, where Tony uses his godlike powers to, quote-unquote, fix the world, before everything runs off the rails, was generally a hit with me as well. I hope to continue to hear your thoughts on the series as it moves towards its conclusion, though it is worth noting that the next volume by Jerry Duggan does carry on from Cantwell's story, being more of a pivot than a hard stop. And yes, spoilers to Luke and others. I don't talk about that next Iron Man volume in this episode because that volume has not hit Hoopla yet. But trust me, as soon as it does... I'm reading it. As far as the romance comics, Luke continues, you made the comment 
that a lot of these anthology romance comics do tend to cover similar ground and themes. I agree. But this comment also reminded me of an article I saw last year talking about the literary romance genre. Specifically, the author contended that without an element of either happily ever after or happy for now, H-E-A or H-F-N, a story should not really be considered romance. Admittedly, my romance reading outside of comics is limited. I'm a big fan of Jane Austen's persuasion, but I do think that there may be some truth to this reasoning. Of course, I do have to say that the stories which break the mold, such as the story from Modern Love 7 about the American man marrying a Mexican woman, tended to stand out more in my mind. So while one can argue that they are not true romance stories hitting all of the genre points, they may end up being more memorable just from that novelty. For what it's worth, that EC Archives Modern Love was my favorite seasonal reading from February. Mine too, Luke. Thank you for making me aware of it on Hoopla. Absolutely. It comes in really handy to have a Hoopla buddy like Luke, where we can point out to each other items the other may have missed on that service. Some of your reading, which stood out for me from this month, included Punk Mambo, which given UNM's fandom of John Constantine, I cannot say I'm surprised to hear you enjoyed. She is a very fun character who has appeared in several spots, as well as a one-shot and her own miniseries. I was a fan of Wednesday Comics when it was released, both the format and the content. The Hawkman strip gave me plenty of good content for my old Hawkman blog. And of course, how could I not appreciate your take on Venom by Larry Hama? Those later Venom miniseries by Hama are pretty off-the-wall stuff, well-suited to the crazy persona of the character at the time. As always, thanks for the thoughtful podcasts which keep me entertained, and I remain your devoted listener, Sir Luke of the Upstate. Thank you, buddy. And a couple thoughts on the genre issues that Luke brought up there. And the fact is that the different genres are defined by certain elements that they are supposed to contain, and more importantly, not contain. You know, cozy mystery is different from a hard case crime story. I've been reading a lot of old-time sci-fi magazines, maybe from the 1950s, and even at that point, the fierce debates in the editorials and the letter pages between what constituted science fiction was passionate, to say the least. A lot of it was whether sci-fi had to be hard sci-fi, and did space opera even count as that genre? And of course, you didn't want to get anyone started on where the line between sci-fi and fantasy was drawn. And even to this day, from what I understand, the lines drawn and the sides taken within the romance genre and the fights within that genre make the Superman fandom look like a tea party. The romance writers of America, the RWA, if you get on their wrong side, they will cut you. <laughs> Luke also commented on the Twitter post 
for that last episode with sob. How can it be that choke? Romance Comics Month is over. Cry. It'll be okay, Luke. You'll be able to kiss your wife again in just 11 short months. For that lovey-dovey episode, Chris Willette posted Hugh Grant gifts, And we heard from Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, who responded with, No, not kissing! Yep, that was a challenging month for everyone. For sure. And Sir Dr. Ange wrote in about my Josie and the Pussycats mention. Love the Alan M. and Valerie comment on the podcast. Those characters being in the books must have read true to you. Then he admitted this truth. I approve of that, if only because it still leaves Josie out there for me. At which point he posted his 2009 Halloween jack-o'-lantern, which was a pretty good representation of the lead pussycat herself. He added that he was glad that I wrapped up Secret Society and the story in the Justice League before making the frankly shocking admission that he doesn't think that he ever got that far with the series. Probably that darned mid-school and See? I told you that was a mistake. <laughs> he also gave some good suggestions for next year's Smoochy Face Month. Maybe you could look at famous superhero romances, the Lois and Clark engagement issues, the many loves of Spider-Man, Iron Man and his dalliances. Those are all good suggestions, Ange. I thought about doing a series about Matt Murdock and all of his girlfriends, but there are only 28 days in February, which I don't think is going to be enough time. The doctor then brought it all the way around and reiterated that he was fine with Valerie and Alan M. As long as Alan M. kept his eyes off Josie, she's my favorite girl. Yes, Ange, we got that. We definitely got that. <laughs> Loved those comments, Doc. Thank you. And social media support for last episode came from The Spiritual Lens, Shane Kelly, A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast, Derek, Derek WC, that fan hole, Vic and Phoenix, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Jeremiah the Notorious JJG, Dave's Comics Heroes blog, Kirk Spencer Big Five Army, Billy D from Magazines and Monsters, Chris, the Charlton Hero, Ed Moore, the Newsprint Commando, Chris Lydon 7, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, another Chris, this one from Professor Frenzy, Sean Urbanski, Bronze Age Babies, and voice actor Gene Hendricks from the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And now, on to the comic books I read last month. And as we do on this show, we categorize or classify those books. And first up are the books I read for podcast appearances. The Homework books. For Quarterbin 190 out a few weeks ago, I solved the mystery of the Maze Agency, number 12. And to appear with the one and only Billy D on the one and only Brave and the Bob. I read Brave and the Bold 90, in which Batman teams up, sort of, with Adam Strange, which seemed straightforward at the time, but trust me, it's not. 
it's Haney. And for comics that I read to listen along with podcasts are getting to be a good number of these many months, goes the DC Infinite app and the DC Comics-themed podcasters, who I thank for giving me the chance to follow along with their content. So two, listen along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower and her crew. On episode 199 of Feathers and Foes, I read Birds of Prey, number one, from the New 52 run. We read a good chunk of New 52 series, but I don't remember reading Birds of Prey at the time. So I am looking forward to dipping into it as they cover it. And to listen along with the Batman Family Reunion show, I read Batman Family 15, in which Batman and Robin team up to take on the two-gun Killer Moth and the sword-wielding Cavalier. That itself was a wild story, and the Man-Bat backup was also solid. We mentioned Billy D's show, The Brave and the Bob, and to follow along with episodes 18 and 19, I read Brave and the Bold 60 and 110. Brave and the Bold 60 was another early Teen Titans story going up against The Separated Man, and 110 co-starred Wildcat. And a listen along with Andy Leyland and podcasting's Michael Bailey on episode 72 of The Overlooked Dark Knight. I read Batman 252. And on to the general comic reading that I did. Manuel Carmona of Truthful Comics sent a Christmas care package, which included Marvel Knights 4, number 3, from 2004. Let me tell you, this was such a joyous, happy story. The FF are being kicked out of the Baxter building. Reed is in the unemployment line. Ben and Johnny are just beating the crap out of each other. Sue is worried about the future. This may be my favorite non-Doom FF story of all time. They are all so miserable, and it made me so happy. And Death of Wolverine number 1, the Charles Soule story from 2014. A lot going on in this one, including a pretty good fight between a Logan without his healing factor and Nuke. Favorite part was when Wolverine meets with the Fantastic Four for help, restoring his powers, and when Reed suggests some others who could help him, because he could not, of course, Logan tells him that he's already seen all of those people. Reed was last on his list. Of course Reed was last on the list. He should be last on every list. And then one that really tied into the Black Adam film... The return of Stargirl to TV, and the second Shazam movie, JSA 73. This was a Day of Vengeance tie-in, and had all of those characters and more. I was out of comics in 2005, so I find glimpses into what was going on back then to be pretty interesting. And Sir Manuel also sent along the all-new, all-different Power Man and Iron Fist number one of five. From 2011, this is a mini written by Fred Van Lente. Danny Rand has found a new Padawan in Victor Alvarez, who has the ability to absorb chi from people around him, making him very strong, sort of bulletproof, sort of a power man. Along with Joy Meacham as their administrative assistant, 
They are a new iteration of Heroes for Hire. The first case that they stumble into involves noir, crime buster, and murder accusations against their former admin, Jenny Royce. I like Van Lenti's writing and storytelling style, and I think this was an intriguing start to a miniseries. From Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Spider-Man 50 from 1994, in which Spidey faces Craven, but not the original Craven. It's like Craven Jr. I mean, he doesn't use that name, but he is the son of Craven. Good story, solid and reasonable for an extra-sized 50th anniversary issue. And from Ron, just Ron, a couple of issues that I read this month because I thought they were going to be manga-related, manga-inspired. The covers had that look, and although they were close, I couldn't bring myself to count them as global comics. So here, I'm going to talk about the 2003 Marvel books, Sentinel 3 and 4. We have a high school student in Wisconsin who finds the remains of a gigantic robot in his family junkyard. In finding it, repairing it, restoring it, he learns that it is, as the title says, a sentinel. So it takes place in the Marvel U, but like manga, that overall plot is really just a backdrop for teen and high school dramas of all sorts. I didn't know what to expect from this, but I have to say, pleasantly surprised. And from Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, Locust number 3 from Scout Comics 2021, it's not bad, but it's not groundbreaking. Post-apocalyptic, looking for a safe community, finding a crazy cult. Look, these things just happen. And also Kirk, One of the items that he sent my way that he got via Kickstarter, Sniper and Rook, Area 50, what? Issue 1, from Silverline Comics. Aliens have been spotted approaching Earth, so the team of Sniper and Rook have been dispatched to Area 51 to discuss with the leading expert in the field, a fellow who is, I know this is a plot twist, kind of nutty himself. But our heroes, one is a hot lady person and the other is a tough guy. I know, break all the molds. They arrive to learn that it's maybe not an invasion, but a rescue mission related to Roswell. Again, nothing groundbreaking, but again, a potentially good start to a storyline. Some issues that Sir Luke sent in, a few holes that I filled in via Hoopla, from just last year, Carnage 1 through 6 and Carnage Forever, mostly written by Ram V. I think Luke sent me these because I said I enjoyed the Let There Be Carnage film a lot more than I expected. So he thought it was the perfect time to rope me in to the greater Carnage-verse. And these weren't bad, I gotta admit. The flow seemed to be interrupted by a Marvel event, I think because a few issues were spent battling elves and other Thor-based characters. I lost the thread a bit there, but the overall story of Cletus rejecting the symbiote, which is good for him, but it did set Carnage free to combine with a serial killer. So yeah, that didn't work so well. I like the issue with the Spot, who 
turned up more than once in my reading this month. Fast-moving action, well-done stories, a little bloody, which you probably already figured. And another one from Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man 99. Again, a pretty solid issue. I really like Felicia Hardy, the black cat. And this took place right when their relationship was complicated. And the main villain, the aforementioned Spot, was a blast to read about. It's a shame that Little Dot hired Richie Rich's legal team to sue the Spot out of existence for stealing her gimmick. But like I said, a pretty fun read. From the dollar box at Crazy Comics, Will Eisner's The Spirit Number 1 from DC. From 2010, the lead stories by Mark Schultz and Moritat with a black-and-white backup from O'Neill and Sienkiewicz. This is from the First Wave Initiative, wherein DC produced a number of stories, from pulp heroes such as The Shadow, Doc Savage, and here, The Spirit. Of course, The Spirit is the one I am least familiar with, although the few stories I've read like this, they tend to be pretty good. And also a Flash reprint special, 80-page giant number nine. This began with the famous Flash of Two Worlds story, notable for beginning DC's Silver Age. We also had stories that introduced Captain Boomerang, as well as the renamed Dr. Alchemy. And of course, it isn't really a DC collection until a super smart monkey shows up So there is also a Gorilla Grodd story. Good collection, very good stories. Yes, a hundred pennies is a lot for me to pay for a comic these days. But when you get 80 page of solid flash action, it is almost worth it. And from Pulp Reality at 50 cents each, Secret Origins. Number six from the 1970s run, portraying the origins of the Legion and Blackhawk. And then from Luke, Jack, and Eddie, a book that still had a 25-cent sticker on it because Luke knows the value of a comic book bargain. Secret Origin 17 from the 1980s run, starring the great Adam Strange and the, you know, fine, Dr. Occult. Uh, That Legion origin is great, although it's dated. Not dated in a way that it contains inappropriate things or or things that need a content warning, but the relationships, the underlying story, it just all seems so old-fashioned. Although I appreciate when DC keeps the basics of the Legion origin in place. In the other issue, uh, the one that Luke sent, it took me a little bit of time to get into Carmine Infantino's version of Adam Strange, but once I did, I really enjoyed that one as well. And one from Luke and one from Kirk Spencer. Wonder Man 2 and 26 from the early 90s. And issue 2 was another in the long-standing series of issues, mostly from Marvel but also from DC, of evil movie producers and film studios. Like literally, movie studios being run by supervillains. In this case, it's the Enchantress. It makes you realize just how jealous these comic book writers were of their colleagues 
who had broken into the motion picture world. Sometimes your feelings as a creator just come out on the page, I think. From the quarter bin sale at Half Price Books, I nabbed the end of a miniseries starring one of Sir Dr. Ange's favorite creators, Howard Chaikin's Midnight of the Soul 3-5. And yes, if you heard me say Chaikin and are assuming that this means that it's gritty and raw, contains lots of violence and sex, sometimes together, and lots of bad, bad language, then yes, you would be right. I also picked up from there a book related to a long-gone, short-lived comic line that I really, really liked and that we've covered a fair amount of on the network. The Techno Comics Handbook was 48 pages, well, more on that in a second, 48 pages of Ohatmu-style entries for all the titles within the Techno universe. It's possible that I am the only person in the state of Ohio who would be very excited to find this book in the wild, even more so at the price of a quarter. I was so excited to add it to my collection, but sadly, it was clear that there were two sheets missing, meaning eight pages out of the 48. So as much as I enjoyed this, sadly, I had to send it to the recycling bin. And that was a bummer, a total bummer. And from Hoopla, I finished up this title, or at least this volume, Witchblade, 13 through 18, which started with our heroine Alex in an apocalyptic, demon-ravaged future, which occurred because of how she saved the day at the end of issue 12. So this combines horror, fantasy, and sci-fi elements as Alex and her crew have to figure out how to travel back in time while defeating the big demon and also getting back her witchblade power. Good stuff, and overall, I've said this with each trade, but I was not sure what to expect with this take on witchblade, but it was much better than I was expecting. Also from Hoopla, the young person-focused series, Marvel Action Avengers 1-3, through in which Tony Stark is taken control of by AIM and becomes himself the advanced Iron Mechanic, which is a little cumbersome of a name, but at least it does spell out AIM. Lots of characters show up in this, mostly from the movies, like Captain Marvel and Black Panther and Pepper Potts. But the big bad behind it all is Madame Mask, although she is much younger and, uh, how would Shag put it, uh, much more, say, classically attractive in a traditional way that I'm used to from Madame Mask. What? She is hot. I mean, yes, that's another way of saying it. She is pretty hot. There's something refreshing about reading YA stories sometimes as they move fast, aren't bogged down with continuity, and are generally fun reads. And these three issues, fun, fast reads. And some kids' books that I read mostly from Pulp Reality. Richie Rich Digest 16, The New Archies Digest 8, 
Archie, Archie Andrews, Where Are You Digest, number five. Archie and Me, 132871. Betty and Veronica, three through six. And Archie at Riverdale High, 573. The B&V issues were from the 1987 volume, which dropped part of the old name from the original title when they rebooted. Back then it was known as Archie's Girls, Betty and Veronica. Here it's just known as Betty and Veronica. You can understand the branding aspect of using Archie's name back in the day, similar to how the Silver Age, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen titles included Superman's name. But by this volume, mid to late 80s, the gals had shaken themselves free of the shackles of Archie's name. Of these B&V stories, my favorite one was where the Riverdale gang was organizing their stop smoking campaign at Lodge Manor, while at the same time, Mr. Lodge was trying to savor one of his nice, expensive cigars. The New Archie's Digest point out one important fact. Yes. We all had bad hair back in the 80s. We just have to admit this. But fortunately... I don't think any of us could have had worse hair than Archie did in the 80s. So there's that. Now, on those digests, I mentioned this last time, but those came inside Ron Sadowski's Christmas Care Package. So always remember, digests make excellent packing material. All right, time to take a break here. And when we come back after this break, we'll talk about the seasonal reading that I did in March. It came from the depths of space, leaving death and destruction in its wake. It is called the Sun Eater because it eats suns. It's kind of in the name. It has latched on to the sun, robbing the Earth of its life giving heat and light. The heroes of the DC Universe have banded together with the greatest scientific minds in the world to stop the monster as the world begins to freeze. If they fail to stop the Sun Eater, the Earth and the rest of the solar system will see their final night. Hello there, I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And I'm Michael Bailey. We're the hosts of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. We cover the Superman books that came out between 1986 and 2006. And we finally reached the end of our cover date in 1996, which means we have gotten to the final night. Because this is one of the better crossovers that DC has published, Jeff and I thought that it would be fun to treat this like the event it is and break up our coverage over four episodes. For those four episodes, we'll be covering the main series, issue by issue, as well as the Superman book that came out the same week. We'll also be taking briefer looks at the other crossover books to give Final Night the treatment it deserves. And if you're hearing this, that means all of the episodes are edited and ready to go, so it will be coming out on a weekly basis. Seriously? Yes, seriously. They're all edited? Yes, Jeff, they are. Edited and ready to go? Yes, Jeff. They are ready to go. Wow, that is surprising. 
Starting on March 30th. I mean, really surprising. Starting on March 30th. Really, really surprising. Starting on March 30th. I I can hardly believe... Jeff, for the love of God, would you shut the f*** up and let me finish this? Yes, the episodes are done. Edited. Ready to go. Unless something prevents me from posting the XML files, the listeners will get a new episode every Thursday starting on March 30th, 2023. We're even going to follow it up with an elsewhere slash meanwhile episode the week after the final episode so we can go through the normal features we usually do during our coverage of a cover month. Okay. Sorry. I was kind of shocked is all. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone is, but it's happening, so let's move along. Can I tell people they can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Audible, and Spotify? Sure. And that the home for the show is www.fortressofbailey2.com? Yes, and that it is part of the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. And we're back to talk about seasonal reading, which for March means hashtag global comics month. Unless you're more on the flat earth perspective, let's just call it uh, international, uh, worldwide comics month. These were sent in from a variety of sources, and I'll do my best to identify those as we go. And for this month, we go not alphabetically, but geographically, starting close to home, at least my home, which actually does allow us to start with Archie. Pep Digital 95. Archie and friends go to Canada to visit Sir Rob Lance and Ranger Gord. They actually abridged that title slightly on the Hoopla version, which is weird. But this is a range of adventures north of the border, with my favorite being the one where the gang is going on a school trip to Ontario, and Mr. Lodge is having problems with his data security in that region. So, against his better judgment, he tasks Archie with delivering a secret message to the head of Lodge's Canadian operations, a plan which goes just about as well as you would expect. Staying up there in the pretty good white north, Justice League United 0 through 4, colloquially known as Justice League Canada. It does take place largely in Canada, at least when it's on planet Earth, because a lot of the action also takes place on RAN, because Adam and Alana Strange. This one does feature Adam, Stargirl, Hawkman, and Lobo, among others. When I say Hawkman and Lobo, I mean Hawkman and Lobo in a knockdown, dragout fight that spans multiple issues because Hawkman. And to be fair, because Lobo. I tend to like Jeff Lemire's non hero writing. And these hero issues were fine but not as strong to me as his independent, creator-owned work, which is not uncommon for a lot of creators. Then we head south of the U.S., where the drug cartels face their worst and smallest nightmare. Hit Girl in Columbia, 1-4. through 
Saddened by the passing of her father and her inability to find a replacement, kick-ass, Mindy is sad and lonely. So she finds herself a local temporary sidekick down there in South America, and together they take on the cartels in a series of very, very bloody scenes across these very, very bloody issues. But there is, in fact, a bit more than that going on with an interesting plot surprise towards the end, where we learn the background of just how Mindy came to be in Colombia, who hired her crazy story, but I found the extremes in this to be funny, which I think may have been the intent, although I recognize that might not be everyone's reaction. But I kind of like this, I have to admit. Heading across the pond, stopping in England, we have a trade I picked up from Hoopla, starring one of the UK's great exports. Doctor Who, the 12th Doctor, 3.1 to 3.4, meaning the first four issues of Season 3, quote-unquote, of Peter Capaldi's comic book adventures. In the first three, he battles Swamp Thing, or maybe it's the creature from the Black Lagoon, whatever you call it. It was a seaweed monster defeated by the power of punk rock. In issue four, he lands in a small American town, befriends a diner waitress, and spoilers, saves the day. I like that the Titan Doctor Who stories can range from one and done's to stories of three, four issues, sometimes longer. And continuing our jaunt east from the world of Franco-Belgian comics, I read a volume that collected Asterix in the big fight, Asterix in Britain, and Asterix and the Normans. In the first one, the chief of Asterix's village is challenged by a Roman general to a trial by combat. But when the druid loses his ability to make the secret potion, how will the village survive? Well, if you want to know, he was knocked on the head and lost his memory. But based on the keen medical advice of Sir Dr. Ange, I bet, another knock in the head restored his memory. And the chief got the potion from the druid just in time to lay a massive beatdown on the Romans. I'm sorry, it's just good science. The one in Britain has many ale-related jokes and ends with a giant rugby match. And with the Normans, the Norse invade. And it does not go particularly well for them. Then we move to Asia, and we start with the DC series from the Rebirth era taking place in China, New Superman 1-6, through covering the first storyline, Made in China. It's one of those things where you appreciate the ambition, appreciate the concept, but it didn't fully work for me. I know that the lead character, Keenan, is supposed to be annoying, but his annoyingness, I mean, it kind of annoyed me. My favorite part was the portrayal of life within the one-party Chinese political system in which both the beings who work for the authorities, such as the Justice League of China, and the ones who are the rebels, including the new Superman's father, are 100% convinced that they are the good guys. Again, I didn't love it, but it was good enough 
that when next Global Comics Month rolls around, I'll probably read the next storyline. And then we spend a lot of time in the land of the rising sun with manga and other related types of stories. Some of these were produced in Japan. Some use concepts and characters from over there. And some are just, let's say, in the spirit of manga. So Justy, number one from Viz by Tsugio Okazaki, which I picked up from the three for a dollar box at Carolina Comics and more. In this black and white series, Justy, who has ESP-type powers of a pretty high level, works for the Galactic Patrol. In this story, he and Lieutenant Trevor find themselves up against Astalis, a gal with a whole lot of revenge on her mind. And maybe my least favorite of the manga stories I read, this one I just didn't get, Pixie Junket number 5 from Viz. I'm guessing that reading 1 through 4 really would have helped with issue 5. I had similar thoughts about Blade of the Immortal 49, but that one had enough going on with it that I could see it as being of a higher quality. I believe that both of these came to me last Christmas via Ron Sadowski. From Comico, Star Blazers 1 of a five-issue miniseries. I've watched very little anime, so I was unfamiliar with the story and characters of this, other than what I've gleaned over my years as a geek. But just as a sci-fi comic, it worked, except for the fact that although it was colored, there were many pages where the narration boxes were black ink on a dark purple background, Maybe at one point in my life I would have read those bits with ease, but no more. And from Dark Horse, 128 pages each that I picked up for only 50 cents each, Super Manga Blast, 3 and 7. The best bits by far were the adorable feline-themed What's Michael stories by Makoto Kobayashi. Of the longer, ongoing stories, I liked Oh My Goddess, wherein a college student, because comics, mistakenly summons a goddess, and the one wish she gives him is that she would stay with him forever, which makes for a whole lot of problems on campus, reminiscing a little bit of 8 billion genies, but with a whole lot less darkness, anarchy, and death and a zombie-like take on a classic property, Lone Wolf, 2100, 1-4, where a scientist has discovered a cure for the plague that has ravaged the world, cutting the population down to about 10%. And he has implanted the cure within his young daughter, and she is under the protection of a tough dude with a sword. When I say dude, I mean android, tough android with a sword. So it's not a carbon copy of Lone Wolf and Cub, but the echoes are clear, the resonances, the references. For a genre-swapped take on a legendary concept, this worked pretty well for me. From Titan Comics via Hoopla, I picked up a series that looked to be a combo of hard case crime and manga. Ryuko, chapters 1 through 6, a black and white comic, by Eldo Yoshimizu and a combo of hard case crime and manga is exactly what this book is. Our lead lady, Ryuku, 
was born into the Yakuza and has grown up to be a no-nonsense, motorcycle-riding tough lady. In this volume, Ryuko learned shocking information about her past, including info about her maybe-not-so-dead-after-all mother, and when she gets mad, people pay. In wild, sword-wielding, motorcycle-riding ways. Did I mention the motorcycle? Because she manages to ride that thing into many more buildings than I would have thought possible. But that's one of the many reasons why comics are awesome. And the manga issue that really stands out to me is one republished by Dark Horse in 1996, You're Under Arrest, number five, by Kosuke Fujishima. This one completely stands out because unlike any other manga I have ever read, this is not an ongoing story. I was about to say it's a one-off, but it's a two-off, actually. Two complete 11-page stories starring a pair of lady police officers. Good stuff, really light when it needs to be, but serious when it needs to be as well, and certainly action-packed when it needs to be. I really enjoyed this one. And then a couple of stories based on famous Japanese properties. First, with two issues I thought were going to be anime-inspired thusly because of the character's relation to Speed Racer, but Racer X, 3 and 4 from Now Comics, 1989, were in fact just a couple of action spy espionage stories. They were written by a young, I mean very young, Chuck Dixon. So they are definitely solid, really good action spy espionage stories. I enjoyed them. They weren't quite as hashtag global as I figured. And then another famous Japanese export, maybe the biggest one. I mean, by size, he has to be, right? Godzilla. Rage Across Time 1 through 5, this was a series of very, very loosely connected stories, one-offs, that proposed the notion that Godzilla has existed on Earth for millennia. And here we have his presence in famous world events and locations, just feudal Japan, the Crusades and the Black Death, and even caveman days. Perfect for someone like me, without a lot of Godzilla history or even passion. So I called on our friend Sir Luke Giaconetti, Godzilla's best friend on the internet, to see what he thought of this series, and he sent this brief pre-feedback. It has been some years since I read Rage Across Time. If I recall correctly, I like it in the same vein as Godzilla in Hell, but not quite as much as in Hell, because I liked more of the individual stories in that series a bit more. On the whole concept of the title of a series of loosely connected series, Luke added that Goji is interesting in that he goes through periods of strong or weak continuity in his stories, but he is a strong character as a symbol, like Dracula or Tarzan or Frankenstein. His core should be recognizable, even when the details are different. Thank you for that info and insight, Luke. And overall, I would say that was a pretty good collection of global comics 
But March is not just Global Comics Month. It was also the month for the third season debut of The Mandalorian. So for preparatory purposes, I read Star Wars The Mandalorian Season 1, Issues 1 through 4, and these are straight adaptations of the episodes. One episode per issue. And it was a really effective way of getting my mindset back into the series and remind me just a bit of what was going on at least way back in those early days. Good work. And I would say, if you want to adapt specific TV episodes to comic books, this is a good model for how to do that. In terms of of how to successfully accomplish that, this is the way. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, Godzilla was fun. Asterix was very fun. I gotta say, I really enjoyed that 80-page Flash special. Thank you, Gorilla Grodd. And as you know, if you listen to the quarter bin, you know I loved the Maze Agency 12. But in terms of my absolute favorite, I'd have to go with because it has stuck with me. Because it was so different, so unexpected a story, so unexpected a comic format for a manga title. You're under arrest. Number five, favorite read of the month. Now, next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than a few humorous books for April. Some Gru, maybe. I think I have a Sugar and Spike somewhere in the pile. And, of course, lots of Archie. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books I read in April in an episode that ought to be out in early May. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these comics I've mentioned, especially if you've read any of them. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for the episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening. And keep the pages turning.